show there, there, your lover's king. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are Neil Farrow, Hang Vo and Renee Dixon. And we do have political commentator and activist Neil Farrow on the line. Neil, welcome to the show. Great to be back here, James. How are you? I'm great. Great to chat with you, Neil. Always wonderful to have you on the show. Now, you've been very busy as always. You've been highlighting the lack of LGBTIQ politicians in Victoria's parliament. Uh, Tell us about that campaign. But look, I think one of the most interesting things for me was when I ran in 2014 and 2018, I was told sort of not to raise the issue of LGBTI representation because it would be seen sort of as self-interest or self-serving. And so, you know, this time round when I'm definitely not running, um, I thought I'd, I'd start sort of raising the profile and raising the issue over the fact that Victoria is really far behind every other state and territory in Australia, but Tasmania and, and behind most of Canada, the US, UK and New Zealand as well. So it's a little campaign in the lead up to pre-selections, which will be happening for all major political parties this year, um, and hopefully trying to get more LGBTIQ people in both red and green um, benches in Parliament. So how has this been received by the Labor Party, considering they told you not to rock the boat? Uh, look, I think it's been received very well and, and Labor's always been obviously a big supporter and we've got plenty of allies and plenty of achievements, um, I think, in our time in Victoria. But I think the more important issue this time around is is for all political parties, we really need to up our representation. And there's some really dire, dire facts in this regard. So Victoria has less than 2% of its members of parliament are LGBTI identifying. And to give a direct comparison to New Zealand, New Zealand has over 10% of its parliamentary MPs. So, you know, they're the same size, similar size parliament, similar population. They have over 12 LGBTIQ MPs in New Zealand, and we have sort of two to three. And it gets even worse when you compare it further afield. Even the Conservative Party in the UK has um, 6% LGBTI politicians. The Scottish National Party has 22% in in their representation in the British Parliament. And even the House of Lords has better representation, both in percentage and real numbers, than Victoria. So, you know, I really think Victoria can't hold on to this equality mantle unless we get people on our parliamentary benches from all political parties um, in the next state election. So why are our numbers so bad? I mean, the Andrews government, you know, rightfully so touts itself as being very progressive on LGBTIQ issues. They've passed all these wonderful reforms for the community. What does it say about the party that can't actually pre-select queer candidates for winnable seats? Look, I think it's an interesting question, and, and there's no doubt um, by any measure or standard, um, objectively or probably subjectively, that the Andrews Labor government in Victoria has probably been the best in Australia when it comes to initiatives and funding and programs and, and a legislative agenda. Um, but it's just interesting, you know, if you make direct comparisons with other progressive states, the ACT has 16% of its parliamentarians LGBTI and over 30% of their cabinet. Now, we have never elected an LGBTI cabinet member to either cabinet or shadow cabinet in Victoria ever. So, you know, we've, we still haven't even elected a lesbian to the lower house. We've never elected a trans or an intersex or a non-binary person to either house. So I think it's just the opportunity that, you know, if we really want to be the equality state and we really want to be progressive in that regard, and um, we've got to also put people on our parliamentary benches. And I think in the past it's been very easy to say, you know, it's up to the pre-selectors in, in any political party, Liberal, Labor, Nationals or anything in between. But I really think um, we've got to go beyond that next year and say, OK, if, if we really want to be an equality state and a progressive state, we've got to make sure that our parliamentary representation at least matches other states and territories in Australia. Um, 
And if you have a look at it, sort of, we're, we're really behind the eighth ball in that regard. Canada was 1988 when it elected its first LGBTI MP. The USA was 1983. The UK was 1984. New Zealand was 1993. And Australia federally was 1996. It wasn't until 2014 that we elected our first LGBTI person to Parliament in Victoria. So, you know, I think a bit of it is is the time is now, and and uh, sort of we've got to do our best in in getting those people involved. And and it's really interesting as well if you have a look in the US, 44 states in the US have higher LGBTI LGBTI representation than Victoria, and they include states like, you know, Kansas and Kentucky and, and sort of Alabama. So, you know, when you're comparing yourselves to that, you, you know you've got to do something uh, to improve your numbers. Of course, you haven't been resting on your laurels. You have been practising what you preach, and you have been mentoring uh, potential queer candidates. Anyone uh, at the point where they're going to put their hand up and identify themselves? Look, I've been speaking to a lot of people across um, the Labor Party and also um, sort of colleagues across the aisle in the Liberal Party trying to get more LGBTI people, LGBTIQ people running uh, next time round. I'm very hopeful, but um, look, the announcement of whether they will run or, or not run will be sort of completely up to them and, and know that they'll have the full support of me and I think a number of others to try and really get that representation. But we need to get people of LGBTIQ representation in Parliament in both safe and marginal seats, and, and we do need to increase our diversity, um, particularly for trans, non-binary and intersex people, and, and getting them elected to Parliament. You mentioned the Liberal Party. Of course, their numbers federally in the in the Parliament are quite good. They've got people like Trent Zimmerman, uh, Dean Smith, of course, uh, the, the list goes on. But yet there's no one in the Victorian Parliamentary Liberal Party. It's quite no mission for them too, isn't it? It is. And, and look, the Victorian Liberal Party, I think, has been behind the eighth ball on LGBTI equality for quite a while. They have quite a few conservative MPs and, and quite a few people who I think have a much more religious bias than the general population in Victoria. But interestingly enough, prior to 2014, the only member of parliament that we had ever had as an out member of parliament was actually a Liberal Upper House MP um, by the name of, I think it was Andrew Alexander. It was um, indeed. He, yeah, so he was the first out MP, and he was actually from the Liberal Party. So historically speaking, the Libs actually beat Labor in Victoria when it comes to LGBTI representation. Now the role is is reversed with the Labor Party, obviously, with a couple, and, and the crossbenchers have won. So, you know, the Liberal Party does look even worse um, than the Labor Party in this regard. And, and while I'm very keen, obviously, to help get the Labor numbers up, um, we also need the Liberal Party and the National Party to come to the picture as well, because federally speaking, they're looking pretty good. And, and if you have a look in a lot of other states and territories like New South Wales, Libs also and the National Party have LGBTI representation as well. But in Victoria, it sounds like you've given up on the Nats. Uh, look, I'm hopeful. As I said, I speak quite a bit to some of my sort of colleagues and friends across the political aisle, and... Um, they definitely uh, are campaigning as well. And, and as I said, the only um, states that we're worse than when you compare to the US kind of give you a bit of an idea that perhaps we really need to up our game. So for those who are really interested in facts, the only states we beat in the US are actually South Dakota, South Carolina, Nebraska, Alaska, Indiana and Kentucky. So every other state in the US has a higher percentage of LGBTI legislators than Australia and, and we really need to up our game. You mentioned before that you won't be running for the next state election. Is that a given? 
Uh, look, I, I very much doubt it. I'm really enjoying the community work that I'm doing and the boards and the other things I'm involved in. Um, and, look, I've had a couple of tilts um, at Parliament, and I think, you know, it's, it's only fair to give others an opportunity and a turn. Um, but, you know, most people... Well, I definitely wanted to enter Parliament to change the world, and so, you know, I hope that... Uh, I can still do that outside Parliament, but for me, it would just be really good this time round to see a number of LGBTI people, LGBTIQ people, sorry, elected to to both houses and both parties. And so, for me, that's sort of my big ambition for this election is not necessarily getting me elected, but just making sure the rainbow community is genuinely reflected in Parliament. Of course, the Labor Party did have an opportunity to put a, a queer, a gay man in the upper house, and that, of course, was you. They um, declined to do that. A lot of your supporters were very disappointed with that. Uh, some say it was quite shabby treatment. What do you think about that? Look, I think it's just very disappointing that um, the Labor Party didn't let, in that particular instance, members have a vote on who they wanted to, to have representing them in the upper house. Um, and I think it was a, an opportunity lost to perhaps um, increase some of the diversity and inclusion in Parliament. But um, as I said, party pre-selection matters are always a complex issue within the party. But I do hope that, you know, based on the back of some of the great achievements that we've done, that, that next year's Parliament will hopefully have more diversity as we go into an election, you know, almost... Probably about 15, uh, 18 months away, a bit under, 16 months away, I think, from today. Of course, you did run for Paran twice. You've got a breadth of experience running on, on queer issues. Uh, if you were to run or, we, or if you were indeed advising queer candidates who were running, what issues would you tell them to highlight? Look, I think one of the really important things is, um, obviously, I ran um, because of my belief around a lot of things like equality and education and healthcare and and the great amount of work that the Labor Party does in all of those areas. And, and being LGBTI is, is just one part of, of who you are, about your history and background and story and involvement with the community. Um, but I do think it is an, a key and critical part. And I think visibility is really important because um, running openly means that other LGBTI people can see that Parliament is an opportunity for them. So, um, look, my advice is there's lots of supporters and allies out there and there's an informal network of a lot of LGBTI past former and, and potentially future politicians who help and support each other. So, yeah, there is support available and um, I'm most happy to share my email address or people can get in touch via Facebook if they're keen on running and, and most happy to support them and, you know, give an honest commitment that if anybody's uh, successful as an LGBTIQ candidate on my side of politics that I'd definitely make a donation to their campaign this time around as well. So, Of course, you are a political commentator. What are your views on how the state government's travelling since Dan Andrews' return from leave? Look, I think um, Victoria's had a lot of challenges over the past year and a bit, uh, obviously with COVID and everything else. I, like many, wish that, um, you know, we don't have to do too much more lockdown, but I think we're doing relatively well on those circumstances. I just think, you know, it's it's interesting to remember that it takes more than one person um, to run a government. And, and, you know, we've got some really smart, capable cabinet ministers um, who I think have stepped up as well. So, you know, remembering that um, the Premier is always the first amongst equals and that it takes a team to be a good government. And I think, you know, hopefully there are things we'll, we'll lean into over the next um, months ahead. What are your views on the state of the opposition? I mean, they were peddling conspiracy theories about uh, Dan Andrews' uh, situation. Uh, it's pretty embarrassing, don't you think? Look, I think the opposition um, probably needs to recognise that Victoria is a pretty smart, pretty educated and pretty progressive state. And, 
and you don't win Victorian votes by, you know, conspiracy theories and, and far fringe kind of ideology. And, and, you know, politics is all about the middle and, and most Victorians are pretty smart when it comes to that. So, you know, not that they'd listen to my advice, but remember that Victorians are pretty smart and pretty educated on the whole and they value their community and, and sort of some of those more fearful policies perhaps don't speak to that. On the federal front, what do you make of the Prime Minister backflipping on the vaccine apology? I mean, his polling on the issue must have been pretty dire for him to do that, don't you think? Well, look, I think the federal government's rollout for the vaccination has been absolutely appalling by all standards and measures. So it's an absolutely, you know, catastrophic failure. Um, even when Malcolm Turnbull sort of points it out and says, you know, what's happening in this space and, and where are we at? You know, I think he was forced into it, but he still has this tremendous habit of blaming everybody else. You know, it's Atagi, it's the state ministers. And if we look way, way back, um, back to where things begin, you know, quarantine has always been a federal responsibility, as has vaccination. So the states have carried a lot of this weight, but realistically, it's only the Commonwealth that should be doing those things. So, look, disappointing. I think uh, he's doing a, a generally poor job in this space. And, and I, I can't quite figure out why, you know, whether bottom of the OECD countries and, and countries in the Pacific, like small Pacific islands, like Niue, have like 95% of their population vaccinated and we're scraping by at less than 10. It's, it's absolutely insane. All right, Neil, going to leave it there. I can hear a little friend barking in the background. Yeah, apologies about that. I've got a new puppy and he's making a few uh, few barks in the background, but uh, hopefully he's, uh, he's found some food or water and he'll be nice and fine. But lovely to speak to you as always, James. Indeed. Take care. We'll talk again. Speak soon. Bye. Neil Farrow there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, and here's Vicky Sue Robinson.
You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, Hang Vo is the chairperson of the Victorian Pride Centre and she joins us on the line. Hang, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, James. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for joining us on In Your Face. Uh, congratulations on the opening of the Pride Centre, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. We were so lucky, James, to actually be able to have the official launch just the weekend before um, we're in current lockdown. Yeah, it was really fortuitous and it was a wonderful event with the Premier and Minister Foley there. We really uh, were just so blessed in so many ways with incredible support from not only the Victorian government, but of course, so many people, James, that have been um, part of this story since the beginning to to now. And of course, if you haven't had a chance to look online, have a look on our uh, web, um, on our Facebook. We've still got the um, the uh, the whole recording of it, but we also had magnificent weather. So when we had the flag raising, Mama also sang somewhere over the rainbow. It was just um, even talking to you about it now. I still get goosebumps. So what a fantastic, fantastic opening it was. It's a wonderful centre. It's um, quite a first, isn't it? Uh, you know, for Australia having so many LGBTIQ community organisations under the one roof. Uh, what organisations are in there? Um, first. First purpose-built LGBTIQ centre in Australia and the second largest in the world, actually. So um, we're so lucky that we've got some really iconic organisations. Um, if I just think through the kind of the the, um, the physical centre and going through each floor, um, we've got Hairs and Hyenas Bookstore, which as many um, people would know in the community that um, it's just, it, it is really iconic and that, you know, we get more than a bookstore, we'll get events, we'll get debates, we'll get discussions and, and, and so on. In terms of the, the actual services in there, we've got Australian Queer Archives, which I think is a very important um, uh, resident of, of the Pride Centre because while the Pride Centre absolutely is about the future, that celebration, but what is really important about having Australian Queer Archives is that it's also it also enriches our understanding of, of the history and the fight and the and the struggles that our communities have gone through um, in order to get to where we are today. So we've got Australian Queer Archives, minus 18, uh, Joy FM. There's a fantastic studios in Joy FM um, at the centre. We've got Melbourne Queer Film Festival, Australian Gay and Lesbian Multicultural Council, Switchboard, uh, Star Health. Star Health is one of our, what we term our uh, commercial um, residents. They are a fabulous mainstream health and community services, but absolutely responsive to um, the uh, needs of our uh, queer community. We've got Thorn Harbour Health, um, also doing critical uh, clinical services for our community, Star Observer and Super, super excited to have uh, Kuru Pride Network as part of part of the um, the mix of uh, residents who will be there permanently. Transgender Victoria, Monash Health uh, Gender Clinic. So you can see there about uh, 12 to 13 really iconic, critical, important health and community services uh, to the LGBTIQ community. So tell us about the centre's vision. It's... Um, Gosh, it's, it's, it's really quite an amazing, amazing achievement to get to where we are today. Um, the vision of the centre, James, is to really provide a permanent home, a permanent, safe and inclusive home for LGBTIQ plus communities. It's a community hub. Um, as I said, it has all of the important health and community services, cultural and social space. 
for the community. And more than that, it's also about a, um, a celebration. I think the permanency of the centre celebrating and commemorating LGBTIQ history is, is so critical to the vision of what we're about. We want to always ensure that we never forget our history and our past and the struggles of everyone who's fought so hard to get us to where we are today. And we've still got a long way to go to ensure equity and equality for queer communities. And so the, the vision is creating a safe and inclusive home for LGBTIQ plus communities to really provide a permanent beacon of hope that's visible, that's, that's, you know, that we're out and we're proud and that we don't have to hide in the closet, we don't have to use the back door to get, to get into the centre, but be proud and be visible that we've got this home that is here to stay. And it's wonderful the centre has a community space named after Yvonne Gardner and Eamon Barbaresco. Tell us about that, that space. Yes, it's, um, we're currently... Um, uh, undertaking a community fundraising campaign to raise $65,000 led by Mama Alto. Um, that we believe very strongly that we, we want to celebrate, commemorate, memorialise the contributions that Eamon and Yvonne have given so much to to to, to our community over over, over their um, contributions in, in so many ways across so many pro- so many organisations, not just the Pride Centre. It's essentially raising money to build a pavilion on the rooftop. So as you can imagine, Melbourne weather, um, having a pavilion with a, with a cover is, is really important. On the rooftop, James, what we um, hope to hold is really we'll have a rooftop bar, we'll have a servery, so we want to be able to have functions. And the idea of the pavilion is actually having a cover and a really nice space in order to have the functions and, um, of course, manage the Melbourne weather. So we're just super delighted to have a pavilion named after Eamon and Yvonne. What parts of the centre still need financial support in order to operate and how can the community help? Yeah, great, fantastic question. And as, as you know, we've, we've built the centre um, and it looks absolutely magnificent and hopefully um, uh, once restrictions ease and we get out of lockdown and we can, we can open up, people can come and visit and book in to see, to see the centre through our tours. But the centre's now built. Um, we've still got some, some fit-outs that we have to do um, and, of course, the ongoing running of the organisation. Um, so in terms of fit-out, we've got furniture, we've got landscaping, some uh, digital infrastructure, um, and there are different ways in which the community can contribute. What's important to understand is that that while we have residents in the centre, we've always based the rent um, on the organisation's capacity to pay. So in effect, of all of the organisations, we've only got two to three, I think, commercial tenants that pay a, a market rate, whereas others pay according to their capacity. And that's a really important um, uh, decision from the Pride Centre because it really is about enabling and, and facilitating the community success in the centre. So that's, that's um, in saying that, what that means then is that we need to find ways to raise, to raise uh, money and to raise, uh, revenue. So different ways in which the community can participate. Um, we've got a pride registry, which if you think about um, a comparison to, I guess, a, a bridal registry, there are different items that people may want to contribute to um, on that pride registry. So um, people um, can, your listeners can contribute as an individual donor. They can have a group of friends in terms of creating a circle of givers. We've got naming rights in different places across the centre. We've really purposefully built our um, 
our community supporter base in the way that everyone can contribute. So, for example, James, our Pride Club ranges from $20 to $50 per year um, for anyone who would like to contribute. And then it goes up to Cornerstone, um, which is $100 um, a year. And then for those who've got more capacity, there's different categories of patrons where we ask for a commitment of three years. So there is really lots of ways in which the community can contribute. And if it's not to contribute financially um, in the way I've just described, as well as having all of those residents in the centre, we actually have a lot of, of, a lot of bookable spaces. So we really encourage the community, if you've got a, a workshop, if you've got an event, to please consider um, booking a space at the centre. We've got fantastic meeting rooms, um, a theatre rest that is multi-purpose. We've got workstations, um, a forum. So um, there's lots of ways in which in which the community can support in, in terms of the ongoing cost of running the, running the centre. You've got some pretty high-profile ambassadors for the centre. Tell us about them and their roles. We sure, we sure do. We're so, so grateful to have, um, of course, our um, organisational patron, um, the Honourable Michael Kirby, uh, human rights icon, really, and, and, of course, gay man who has fought um, for the rights of LGBTI communities over, over many years. So Michael is our organisational patron. Um, we have a range of, a range of ambassadors. Um, top of mind, I can think of Benjamin Law, um, Courtney Act, Julian McCrossan, and a whole range of really quite a diverse a diverse mix of, of ambassadors. And the idea um, of amb- our ambassadors is to really exactly that to be diverse and to reach into different areas within the community. Um, and their role, as as the name suggests, ambassadors is really to to fly the flag, to really promote to to um, to promote awareness and and promote understanding of the value and the importance of the centre. Of course, you've recently taken over as the chair of the Victorian Pride Centre from the legendary Jude Munro. Tell us a bit about yourself and your journey that led you to the role. Yes, look, firstly, James, I, it is honestly one of the biggest honours and privileges of my of my career, of my life, really, to, to have been trusted um, and appointed into the chair role by my uh, uh, board colleagues. Um, we have a fantastic uh, directors and, and a great team, a fantastic CEO, Justine Delariva. So, look, my, my journey to the Pride Centre is, um, is really a bit personal in that um, so I came to Australia, James, uh, as a seven-year-old um, uh, refugee, really, from Vietnam. So I came with my family as part of the first wave of Vietnamese refugee boat people. And being a lesbian, coming from a Vietnamese refugee background, I've ex- really um, experienced a lot of a lot of the uh, dislocation, a sense of not ever fitting in, um, and in lots of ways, living in the closet, not just as a, as a lesbian, but but as a refugee, you know, com- coming from the background that I've come from, and the the opportunity to be part of building a centre and and, uh, creating a vision that is essentially about a safe and inclusive home for those who have been dislocated, for those who have never felt like we've fit in. It's um, it's such an honour for me to be part part of that. And and I've always really enjoyed governance and and being able to play my part in in good governance of an organisation. It's a wonderful story and it really kind of, you know, is an example of the inclusiveness of the centre. It really, yes, it really is, and I think also um, what we what we really value at the centre is is 
again, it's not about fitting in, but it's about belonging. And I, I hope that um, through my role and, and, and uh, my participation in the centre, that it really does give an, an example of what what we mean when we talk about intersectionality. You know, perhaps sometimes it's, it's a, it can be considered a buzzword in our community at the moment, but it really genuinely is what we're about, which is that we recognise the many dimensions of people from our community and, and it's, it's, it's just not one dimensional. There's so many parts of us that make up who we are. And so the centre is representative of that, that we want that we want everyone um, in all of the dimensions to feel like they are in a safe and inclusive home. Of course, there is an open house plan, but lockdown has probably um, delayed that. What are the plans for an open house so people can check the wonderful Victorian Pride Centre out? Yes, unfortunately, we were we were meant to open on the from the nineteenth of July, um, so we haven't been able to do that. But in the first instance, I really encourage listeners to go to the Open House Melbourne website. We will actually be online um, at two pm tomorrow. That will be the first opportunity to see the tour um, online because we, of course, now can't can't be there on site. As soon as restrictions ease, um, we will be taking uh, bookings for tours across um, throughout the week. So the idea, James, is if uh, listeners would like to come into the centre, so please get online to our, our, our website and book a tour. We'll be, we'll be having these um, tours over, over the coming weeks and potentially a, a couple of months to really allow our residents to settle in. We still have some fit-outs, as I said earlier. So once, once our residents are able to settle in, then we'll have more regular opening hours. But in the first instance, we're very keen to get as many people through. So please get online and book a tour with us. Absolutely, Hang Vo. Congratulations on the Victorian Pride Centre's opening and thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's a pleasure. Thank you, James. Cheers. Hang Vo there from the Victorian Pride Centre. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James and here's Florence and the Machine. Drifting through the halls with the sunrise Holding on for your call Climbing up the walls for that flashing light I can never let go Cos I'm gonna be free and I'm gonna be fine Holding on for your cause I'm gonna be free and I'm gonna be fine Maybe not tonight Now the sun is up and I'm going blind Holding on for your cause Another drink just to pass the time I can never say no Cause I'm gonna be free and I'm gonna be fine Holding on for your cause I'm gonna be free and I'm gonna be fine
Lawrence and the Machine there, Delilah. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. While well, Renee Dixon is the co-founder of the Forcibly Displaced People Network and they join us on the line. Renee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, James. It's a great pleasure to have you on board. Renee, tell us about the work of the network. Um, so FDPM is an organization established by and for LGBTQ forcibly displaced people. We are going, we're doing a lot of work, like writing submissions to the government about how their decision affecting our lives. We're engaging with United Nations bodies, um, organizing events, working with a pro bono law firm. For example, recently, currently, we're doing the work on name change laws around Australia to try to analyze them. Um, so that more people on a bridging visa, for example, will have an opportunity to go and change their names because for LGBTQ refugees, it's about affirming who they are and ensuring safety. So um, they, they sometimes we have the cases when family members coming to Australia trying to trace down their uh, kids and trying to take them down, uh, take them back. So um, it's really important for us, and that's something that we're working on currently. Um, we finalizing training module for LGBTIQ and resettlement service organizations because sometimes we can see that there is no understanding of intersectionalities and um, what needs to be adjusted to make their services more inclusive and more sensitive for our experiences. And uh, we're doing a lot of community events for people to come together, to share the meal, talk, and um, to share how they overcome challenges, how we um, share our happy moments or our sorrows. And um, sometimes we provide direct support to our community. Um, like last year, during the, when the COVID hit, we stopped fundraising money and uh, helped some people on a temporary protection visa or asylum seekers to pay their bills and not live on the street, you know. Um, and we want to help, help as many people as possible. But um, most importantly, we need to work on the systemic change, but we don't have paid staff. And uh, this affects our ability to bring the important changes to our community. And I would like to use this opportunity and to ask people and listeners uh, to be our monthly donors because FDPN uh, will greatly uh, benefit uh, if you would support our community. Absolutely. Of course, the Forcibly Displaced People Network developed the Canberra Statement. Tell us about the Canberra Statement. So the Canberra Statement is the first uh, world document that was done by LGBTQ forcibly displaced people to provide steps to achieve safety and justice for LGBTQ people. Canberra Statement is... Uh, one of the outcomes of the Queer Displacement Conference that took place in 2019. It was the first conference in Asia-Pacific solely dedicated to the issues of LGBTQ uh, people in displacement. We um, used our privilege studying at ANU as a PhD student with my partner, Tina Dixon, and ensure that um, we could bring the support um, of different bodies and, most importantly, individuals to run this event. And we made sure that we center the lived experiences of people and fully sponsored 27 LGBTQ forcibly displaced people to attend the event and bring their experiences at the center of the conversation. Because too often, uh, this conversation about our lives happening without us, 
which should not happen, you know. Uh, we brought together academics, some government bodies, NGO, like resettlement services and LGBTIQ organization, and other advocates. And this conference was attended by 150 people from 14 countries. The Canberra Statement was being created um, in consultation with the conference attendees. So this is a policy document that can uh, that can be signed on uh, by individuals or organizations to affirm the need for a set of reforms and to ensure that um, our people can get access and safety um, uh, and, and get justice um, for, for our community. So this document is about standing in solidarity with LGBTQ forcibly displaced people, and it's about centering the voices of LGBTQ people in everything what is done about our lives. How would you define a forcibly displaced person? Um, good question. Uh, so forcibly displaced people, a uh, person is, encompasses more groups than uh, those who recognize as refugees or asylum seekers. So we uh, include these terms, uh, those who had other um, migration pathways. For example, it can be student or it can be um, um, skilled migration, um, other visas. So it's still unsafe to stay um, in their countries for them. But uh, this does not mean that these people were not subject subjected to violence or persecution. But uh, these people may still have similar to displacement experiences, but unfortunately in Australia you may not be qualified for the support unless you're on a refugee visa. So it's important to ensure that we encompass um, different um, scenarios to, uh, to, to this uh, term and definition forcibly displaced person. Absolutely, and I guess it's often a term that applies to queer people who perhaps don't qualify as refugees or asylum seekers but desperately need support from the Australian government and don't get it. Yes, yes. So what what work does the Australian government need to do in this in this area? I mean, there must be so many gaps. There must be so much that the Australian government needs to do for forcibly displaced queer people that they're just not doing. Uh you know, uh, I would say like this Canberra statement is providing with steps and uh, it's describing what needs to be done in different levels. So, for example, um, we ask for human rights approaches when they're assessing our claims for protection. Uh, we ask for legal fair process um, and um we most importantly, we need to have a better data collection as the government and UNHCR, which is an international body, does not collect any data on LGBTQ people in migration spaces. Um, and we ask for um, findings to be prioritized for LGBTQ refugee-led services. There is also a series of asks uh, to other stakeholders, such as NGOs. So, for example, we need services that are both culturally competent and LGBTQ inclusive. We have some cases when LGBTQ plus person coming to the refugee services and they get misgendered and they get experiences of homophobia and transphobia. At the same time, in LGBTQ spaces, people may experience some racism and xenophobia. Uh, and it 
it's about the will and act from services to make sure that every person walking through the door uh, is supported. Any services that support people um, in their social welfare may at some point work with LGBTQ migrants or refugees. So it's every everybody business and uh, everyone needs to be trained to provide uh, appropriate support. And such changes can happen without the government. Absolutely. Tell us about the story that led you to become an advocate in Australia for forcibly displaced people. Oh, you know, the, this work built up gradually. Uh, when we came with my partner to Australia as refugees, um, we uh, were suffocating in this uh, vacuum because no one is talking about LGBTQ and refugee experiences. Because, like, for example, last month we had uh, Pride Month and no, almost no organizations in LGBTQ space reflect on our experiences, LGBTQ and displacement. And during that Pride Month, we have Refugee Week, and almost no refugee organization reflects that actually not all refugees are um, heterosexual, you know? Uh, so these massive gaps and silencing around this issue broke our silence, and we started doing this uh, work in this area. And first we started to do um, queer displacement, pro- uh, queer sisterhood project, uh, which was focused only on experiences for of LGBTQ plus refugee women. And then after queer displacement conference and momentum were built, and we, we decided to um, register uh, FDPN network. So we often um, see that uh, these issues of LGBTQ refugees are silenced, and um, it's essential that organizations like our exist, um, and we, uh, we we know what we need, uh, and uh, it's very important that organizations are driven by the people with lived experience, because we're a little bit tired that a lot of people uh, assume that they, need, they know what we need, <laughs> you know, and how the solution can be achieved. So um, th- that's how we start doing this work, and um, it's it's a, this work. It's, a, it's what we do. It's our necessity to survive um, and to support our communities. And it's also coming with a sacrifice, because as we're doing this job, uh, we're doing this job after work on the weekends and so on. We know that unless you are out there and making people reflect that. Not every refugee is heterosexual or cisgender, uh, and that many people are subjected to the violence simply because who they are and who they love and how their bodies looks like. It's really rarely mentioned by someone else uh, than you, you know. And at the same time, we need to reflect that not every LGBTQ person is a citizen. So instead of waiting to sit at the table, we decided to create this seat at the table ourselves, you know. Absolutely. Well, Renee, you should be very proud of the Forcibly Displaced People Network. It's a wonderful organisation. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 3CR In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. 
Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.